Hey, welcome to Inside Impact. On last week's episode, Elisa talked to John Samuel about how he has overcome his challenges to create opportunities for people with disabilities. And today we're sharing chapter one of John's new book, Don't Ask the Blind Guy for Directions, which is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. It is truly an amazing story, so be sure to check it out. We'll put a few links in the show notes. All right, here is chapter one of Don't Ask the Blind Guy for Directions. Chapter one, home. The rain pounded down on my old white Jeep Grand Cherokee, banging against the metal frame and rattling the interior. The downpour was so loud, I couldn't hear the music on the radio. I couldn't even hear myself think. But if I could, I would be screaming. I was driving down one of the narrow suburban streets of Cary, a suburb of Raleigh in North Carolina, the picturesque town I grew up in. When it wasn't being drowned in rain, Cary was the type of place where lawns are manicured to the perfect height and lush big green oaks dot the landscape. When my parents moved to Cary in 1980, there were fewer than 20,000 people living there. But as the low cost of living and good schools continued getting attention, people started coming in droves. Cary gained a reputation as the acronym C-A-R-Y, Containment Area for Relocated Yankees, because it became rare to find someone who was actually from there. I was, but people couldn't understand how someone born in Cary with a name like John Samuel could be a brown kid like me. Driving in Cary was hard enough for me on a normal day. My vision was rapidly declining for a reason I didn't understand yet, and I refused to tell anyone about it. I wanted to belong so badly that I didn't care what happened after I climbed into the driver's seat. Now, as a 17-year-old, I had managed to work around my driving issues for the past year. I made sure to do most of my driving during the day when I could see better. Details and signals were hazy, but I made sure to take the same routes on roads I knew well. I tried to avoid driving at night because it was especially tough. Everything got darker and darker, and it was harder and harder to see things. Everything except lights. Lights were blinding. Think of yourself driving. If you glance at a passing car's high beams, you might have difficulty seeing the road for a second. For me, that moment would stretch for three or four seconds. I began wearing sunglasses at night when I drove. Not to be cool or to mimic every singer from the 1980s, but because they helped to make the bright lights not so bright. Even though I had learned how to get around my driving difficulties, nothing could help me on this one night. A torrential downpour was causing rain to cascade down my windshield like a waterfall. But with broken wipers, I had no way of seeing past it. I was holding a napkin in my free hand and clearing off my foggy windows every few minutes. And any time I could see, I was blinded by the reflection of light in any puddle. Things got worse when a car from one of the side streets turned left in front of me to enter the street I was on, the main road. Its headlights flooded the inside of my Jeep with light, forcing me to squint and guess where I was going. I tried to keep my direction as straight as possible, but when the wheels on the left side of my car sunk in a puddle, my steering wheel got a mind of its own. Suddenly, I was swerving into the opposite lane, 
where the oncoming car was heading straight for me. The driver laid their hand on their horn and kept it there. The sound pierced my ears and rang for an eternity. I held my breath and waited for the end. Just when I thought my life was over, I felt my hands rise and gripped tightly on the wheel. It was as if my instincts were taking over. I tugged the wheel back to the right and veered back into my lane again. The car continued forward, its horn still blaring, but its sound grew quieter. Somehow, I was okay. I clicked on my emergency lights and pulled over to the side of the road. My wheels were sinking into mud, but I didn't care. I needed time to catch my breath and let my heart calm down. When the reality of what had just happened sunk in, that I could have killed two people, one being me, all because I couldn't see, I burst into tears. The tears streamed down my face like a river, forcing me to gasp for air as I drowned in my tears. The more I cried, the more confused and desperate I felt. There was one question I kept coming back to. What the hell is going on? I toward the future. Growing up, I had a clear vision for my future. I would become a business executive like my father, go to a top-tier university and earn excellent grades, climb the corporate ladder, own fancy suits, host business dinners, and drive a fancy European car with butter-soft leather seats. I was going to be successful. Becoming a doctor or engineer seemed reasonable. That was the expectation anyway, as the son of Indian immigrants. My parents came to the U.S. from India in 1969, from the southwestern state of Kerala, where there is a large Christian population. That's how I ended up with a name like John Samuel. I grew up hearing about how my father came to the U.S. with $7 in his pocket, and how, after spending one of those dollars on a pack of cigarettes and 50 cents on a necktie, he was able to work his way through college while supporting his family back home in India. By the time he moved to North Carolina, he had already started his ascent from engineer to corporate executive, despite landing in the country only a decade earlier with a little grasp of spoken English. I admired his story. I wanted to be like him. When my parents moved to the area, there were only five other families from Kerala, so we were a tight-knit group. On weekends, the families all would gather at one of our homes. The dads could be found sitting around a table playing cards, while the moms were in the kitchen blending spices for biryani, a savory baked rice and meat dish, or sambar, a vegetable-based stew. Meanwhile, we kids could be found playing basketball in the driveway. Despite being surrounded by this Indian community, I was the only brown kid in my class up until 7th grade. Just as I wasn't surrounded by many people growing up who looked like I did, I also didn't know anyone who had a disability. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, CDC, 61 million people in the U.S., or 26% of the population, have a disability, and some experts estimate that nearly 20% of those impairments are considered to be invisible, meaning not immediately obvious to others. 
At that point, disability meant handicapped, which I didn't realize at the time wasn't inclusive language, and I only associated that term with parking spots. The only exposure that I could recall was seeing one man walking around town with a cane in his hand, and he must have lived nearby because he would always pass by our car as we drove out of our neighborhood. He often wore a baseball cap and sunglasses with a button-down shirt and windbreaker. He stood out to me not only for the white cane, but also for the fact that he was walking on the sidewalk of the main road. No one typically walked beyond our neighborhood streets. He looked friendly enough, but I felt sorry for him. I couldn't imagine the life of someone who's blind. Blindness just wasn't something that crossed my mind, but that didn't matter. It was always waiting for me. The first time I noticed something wasn't right with my eyesight was when I was about 10 years old at my cousin's house. My cousin was talking about the stars in the sky, so I scanned and squinted and scrunched my eyes, trying to get a glimpse of the pinpoints of light. But I couldn't really see them. Every year when I returned to his house, my vision had become worse and worse until all I saw above was midnight blue, a sea of darkness. And because I had very real vision issues but no way of accepting them, I struggled in school. I wasn't a bad kid. I just didn't apply myself. At least that's what I kept hearing. It wasn't as if I didn't try to speak up. For instance, when music classes began in elementary school and I couldn't see my sheet music, I tried to tell my teacher. Instead, I heard snickering in the classroom in response. The other students thought I was joking. Because of their reaction, my teacher assumed the same. That's one way to get out of playing, she quipped before continuing with her lesson. Blackboards made things even more difficult. When a teacher would use chalk, erase it, and then write on top, it would look like a big gray blob to me. I couldn't even guess an answer at that point. I'd try really hard whenever I was called on, but I would look dense, as usual. At that point, I started relying on humor to get out of situations that would make me look bad. Sometimes I would offer an outlandish answer to get some laughs from the other kids. Humor became a useful shield for me. But it came at a price. Soon, I was getting C's and D's and my reputation as a class clown was spreading through the school, leaving my parents quite disappointed. It didn't help that my sister Susan, who was almost six years older, was just about perfect when it came to my parents' standards. She earned a near 4.0 GPA in high school and college, went to medical school, and got into an Ivy League school for her residency, making my parents proud and setting their expectations for me Sky high. Thankfully, at school, I had a good support system that didn't care what grades I was getting. My high school friends were some of the top students in our class, and unlike everyone else, they knew something was wrong with my eyesight. Not because I told them, they just seemed to know. So they wanted to help me out however they could. My friend John dedicated many hours to driving me around, while my other friend Sid was even willing to put himself on the line to bolster my grades. We had sophomore year English together, and because both of our last names started with the letter S, we sat next to each other in the back. 
Not only could I not see the blackboard, making class and tests even harder, but having to mark my answers on Scantron sheets, multiple choice, fill in the bubble forms, it was truly another level of murder on my eyes. For our first test of the year, the test packets flew backwards toward me after passing through the hands of everyone in my row. Then came the Scantron forms, thin, flimsy sheets of paper that were covered in rows of blue circles. Blue circles that I would have to fill out. This isn't going to be good, I thought. When the test started, I watched the seconds tick away on my watch. When it came time for me to answer my first question, I could barely make out a thing between the test and my Scantron sheet. Soon it was filled with smeared, smudged graphite, hesitation marks, and signs of struggle, and erasures to try and clean the scene of the crime. That was when Sid came to my rescue, or tried to. He scooted his answer sheet to the other side of his desk and lifted it slightly toward me. Psst, he whispered quietly. Thankfully, only a head or two turned, but the teacher didn't notice. I looked up from my test and saw what he was offering me. I strained my eyes, trying to catch a glimpse of his answers, but I immediately knew there was no way I was going to be able to read them. I nodded his way, gave him a sign of my gratitude, but then shook my head as if to say, Don't worry about it. I don't need it. He raised his eyebrows in surprise, thinking I was being such an honorable guy. Little did he know, I would have taken all the help I could get. I continued stumbling my way through high school, literally whenever I would trip on something I couldn't see, as well as metaphorically. My GPA was barely above a 2.0, an ugly mosaic of everything but A's. After enough frustration and incorrect answers and I don't knows, I got my eyes checked at an eyeglass retailer and vision center at the nearby mall. They ran me through a barrage of standard eye tests. I studied their circular illustrations, trying to find the numbers within them, and nearly fell out of my chair when they blew shots of air into my eyes. Nope, nothing wrong there, just tears at the corners of my air-blasted eyes. I looked through a viewer to check my peripheral vision, but they couldn't find any issues with it either, which made sense to me. My peripheral vision was always pretty good. Everything else was the problem. Then it came time to pull the phoropter, that alien-looking device, in front of my eyes and check my vision in each eye. The objects in the viewer were made clearer or blurrier with a series of lenses. Is the object clearer here? Click. Or here, the doctor would repeat over and over again. At the end of the appointment, the optometrist didn't have any answers for me. My sight was inconsistent, so like my classmates and teachers and parents, the doctor thought I was messing around too. With no diagnosis and a bit of a reputation, I figured, if that's how it's going to be, why not mess around a bit? I started drifting and began experimenting with drinking and smoking pot. I'd do stupid things, often to look cool in front of my friends or to get a laugh out of people. One time, when I was skipping class with a girl, we went to a grocery store to get candy. We were planning on smoking pot, and I used to get the munchies. So I put a bag of Sour Patch Kids in my pocket. An employee saw me and called the cops. 
I ended up getting suspended from school. My parents were horrified. The incident was just about the worst thing possible. While my sister was a star student and future doctor, I was cutting class and getting kicked out of school. Everything culminated on a day when my senior year English teacher, Miss Fenton, had had enough. I was goofing off in the back of the classroom, like always, flipping one of those thick erasers on my desk over and over again. Miss Fenton eyed me like a hawk as she paced back and forth in the front of the classroom. Class, why do you think Shakespeare plop with my eraser after it completed another successful flip? Miss Fenton cleared her throat and went on trying to ignore me. Why do you think Shakespeare has remained relevant all these plop? John, she snapped, can you please, for the love of God, stop that? The classroom fell eerily silent. I did too. No teacher had ever been so direct with me. Sorry, Miss Fenton, I murmured, feeling more uncomfortable than actually apologetic. Miss Fenton stared out the window for a moment, then shot her glare back at me, her eyes somehow more piercing than before. She sighed. This is why you'll never amount to anything. Everyone froze, paralyzed by shock. None of the 17 and 18-year-olds around me had ever heard a teacher say something like that to a student. Meanwhile, I was trying to hide the fact that my jaw had dropped to my desk. I didn't move or speak the rest of the class. I was humiliated, angry, ashamed. My ego was in the gutter alongside my GPA. I knew people would write me off, but how was I supposed to recover when someone who was supposed to help, nurture, and mentor me completely shut me down? By my last year of high school, it was as if I had become a self-fulfilling prophecy. I had tried to ask for help, but because no one took me seriously, the less serious I became. Was the cycle just bound to continue? Miss Fenton's comment haunted me from that moment on. Her statement wasn't just an indictment on my present, but on my future too. Was I doomed to be a failure? Meanwhile, all of my friends were getting acceptance letters for their top choice universities. One received a top scholarship at NC State, full ride, all expenses paid. Another friend got into every top school that he applied to. Not me. I received rejection after rejection from my top picks. I did receive one acceptance letter, Virginia Commonwealth University, VCU, the same university where my sister was attending med school. That proximity was helpful for me since my parents were going to relocate to India for work after I graduated from high school and my buddies would be attending other colleges. VCU it was then. It had to be. From Comfort to Peril I was full of hope the first time I stepped onto VCU's campus as a freshman. I had visited the campus several times before to see my sister, and I thought the familiarity would be helpful for me and my vision. I recognized Monroe Park in front of me with its tall trees, weaving gray sidewalks, and the constant chatter of students walking through it. I could also make out parts of the engineering building where I was going to be studying. That building, the newest addition on campus, 
had a distinct look with tall glass windows and steel beams. After spending some time taking in the campus beyond the sights, the whirl of the cars behind me, the birds chirping in Monroe Park, the electric energy that surrounded me, I was ready to begin my new life. VCU could be a fresh start for me, a chance to create a new reputation and apply myself. I turned around to face my parents, who were standing in front of our car. I had my entire life packed into two suitcases beside me, one of them a bright yellow. I initially picked it out because I liked the color, but the color also inadvertently helped with contrast. And my sister had hers. I said goodbye to my mom first, whose tears I could feel on my face as we hugged, and then my dad. To my surprise, when I went in for a hug, I felt drops of water trickle on my neck and shoulder. My dad was crying for the first time. I'll see you soon, Dad, I said as I pulled away from him. I checked in with my sister, who nodded back at me. We were both ready to go. My sister went left toward her off-campus row house while I went through Monroe Park for my dorm, but not without waving goodbye to my parents first. Still crying, they returned the gesture and then disappeared into the car, possibly not wanting the memory of them with tears on their faces to be burned into our memories. Too late. Before I knew it, I was alone, now blanketed by trees and comforted by the silence of nature. Something about it felt nice. Sure, part of me wished I could be at a better school with my high school friends, but it was actually nice to be on my own. I felt a sense of independence. The only problem, as always, was my eyesight. Monroe Park was unusually dark due to the fact that the heavy tarp of leaves was covering me and the park lights in shade. Navigating the trees and sidewalks and people not to mention the gangs of squirrels that called the park home, was a challenge, and my shins were proof of that. By the time I made it to my dorm room, they were bloody and bruised from walking into trash cans and benches. This'll be one hell of a first impression, I told myself. As it turned out, I didn't need to make a first impression. During my first week of school, like many undergraduate students, I had a tough time making friends and didn't have a lot of interaction with other people. I was disappointed when I would hear my friends talk about their own college experiences, tailgates at football games, parties, and fun. VCU didn't have a football program, and this was years before the school's basketball program gained national fame. The students in the dorm who lived on the same floor as mine hung out together, and I wasn't included. I came across as quiet and shy, and for a while, I was all by myself. People would go out and party, and I'd be left behind. People would be in the bathroom the next morning, hungover and talking about their night, whereas I'd have gone to bed at 8 p.m. because I hadn't known that people were going out. Maybe that isolation was for the best, because my vision issues continued to worsen. My vision field featured a series of blind spots, and at night, I felt as if I were walking through a pitch-dark cave using a fading candle flickering at its end. Since I couldn't see properly, I kept tripping over or walking into things. My shins were a constant watercolor of reds and purples, bruises and bleeding. 
Curbs and rocks were a struggle. Puddles were unavoidable. I remained as clumsy as ever. The difficulty of walking a few blocks or crossing a park at night forced me to often skip my evening classes. I memorized when sunrise and sunset were every day so I could make sure to get home in that time. I was like a farmer. After daylight savings time began in March, I'd call that Johnny's time. The days were longer, and the additional amount of sunlight dictated my happiness, well-being, and outlook. But Johnny's time couldn't come soon enough. At VCU, when you got a 2.0 or lower, you got an academic warning. After three academic warnings, you got suspended. Three strikes and you're out. I flittered right around that 2.0 level. One semester I'd be above, the next I would be below that 2.0 level. New school, same problems. I couldn't take it anymore. During a break in the school year, I'd had enough with my eyesight and decided to visit a specialist. Something was definitely wrong, and my life had become severely affected and restricted by my vision problems. Maybe they could give me some eye drops, or special glasses, or something that would help me. Instead, the specialist gave me something called an ERG, or electroretinogram. It's like an EKG for your eyes. They essentially put these contacts with wires sticking out of them on your eyes and flash lights in your eyes so they can count your rods and cones. I was sent home to wait for the test results. About a week later, my dad had sent me to our house to retrieve something on his behalf, since he was still living in India with my mom. It was there, when I was alone at the house and rifling through the drawers in his desk, that the fax machine suddenly came to life. I jumped at the sound of its whirling, but when I turned around, all I found was a harmless piece of paper. I strained my eyes to read the small gray text on the white paper. It turned out to be a lot more damaging to my mental state than I could have ever imagined. The fax was from the specialist, telling me I had something called retinitis pigmentosa. I looked it up and found out that retinitis pigmentosa, or RP, was a degenerative and genetic eye condition. Eventually, my eyesight would worsen to the point of blindness. Blind. That one word felt like a death sentence. In an instant, my entire world came crumbling down as I spiraled down a Google rabbit hole. I had all the symptoms, like difficulty seeing at night, appearing clumsy, and a reduced vision field. Yep, all of the above. I would probably have to read Braille because one day, I would not be able to read anything on paper. I learned the disease is genetic, and even more damning was the countdown looming over my head. My research said my vision could disappear entirely within a year. According to the CDC, as of 2012, 4.2 million people in the United States aged 40 years and older suffer from uncorrectable vision impairment. 1.02 million of whom are blind. This number is predicted to be more than double by 2050 to 8.96 million due to the increasing epidemics of diabetes and other chronic diseases in our rapidly aging U.S. population. The more I learned, the more horrible I felt. 
I felt as if my dreams were being ripped away from me. How can you be a business executive if you can't see? What career could I have? What woman would want to be with me? Where could I live if I couldn't drive? There was no escaping the dilemma anymore. It all was becoming very, very real. While I wallowed in the devastating news, my parents found out from the specialist who called them directly. They reacted with anger. Not only did they not want to know anything else about it, but they also refused to go back to the doctor. I think they were doing everything they could to avoid the fact that RP is genetic. They couldn't accept the diagnosis, and they denied that something was wrong with my eyes. As for me, I didn't want anyone else to know about my condition either. I wasn't ready to be vulnerable. I wasn't ready to let anyone see the true me. I wanted to belong, not be an other. I was going to keep pretending everything was fine while maintaining my secret. Another mistake, as I'd realized years later, because ignoring my disability led to my biggest failures, but embracing it would contribute to my greatest triumphs. During my journey, I learned how the world is systematically unequipped to set up people with disabilities for success, even though those with disabilities are some of the most capable people out there. According to an NBC News article, up to 20% of public school students are served under the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, but only 7% of Asian Americans are the lowest of any group.